Good morning, church. Uh, it's good to be with you on, on this Lord's Day. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer as we continue to talk about this powerful, powerful gift that Jesus gave us as a way of communion with our Heavenly Father. Uh, we are also in the midst of our 40-day prayer challenge, and I want to just take this moment to encourage you to take advantage of the various prayer resources and spaces we've, uh, we've uh, made available to you. Um, I especially want to encourage you, uh, I got a word from Emily that the 30-minute prayer slots have been a little bit slow in coming in terms of sign-ups. I want to encourage you to sign up for that as a way of establishing a habit and a rhythm of setting aside intentional time to be with God in prayer. And I'll tell you why that's so important. I, I often hear people talk about you know, prayer, it is talking to God. So folks say, you know, I could talk to God anytime, anywhere. And that is true. We could talk to God anytime, anywhere. But I think there is something about setting aside intentional time, focused, intentional time to be with God in prayer. Um, many of us are accustomed to what I call on-the-go prayers. You know, we, we pray while we're in the car, we pray while we're walking somewhere, and, and it's help God, be with me, God. Those types of prayers are, are great. First Thessalonians even tells us to pray continually. But those prayers, if they are the sum total of our prayer life, there's a sense in which our prayer life with God can really suffer. Our relationship, our communion with God could really suffer. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. You know, if the only conversation that Jenny and I have, and you could use any other illustration in terms of a good friend, a best friend, or some sort of relationship, if the only conversation Jenny and I have is what I call you know, on-the-go kinds of conversation, I could sit three feet away from her and feel totally disconnected. Um, there are times in, in, in our marriage where I'll say, Jenny, I, I, just feel, I just feel far away from you right now. I feel, I feel distant. Can, can any of you relate to that? And the thing is, there are no problems. You know, not, we're not arguing about anything, and there isn't like an outright conflict. And it's not also because we're not talking. We're talking. But there's all the difference in the world, church, in talking while you're making dinner, and setting aside time to get away a couple hours uninterrupted to talk about what's on our hearts. There is all the difference in the world, difference between dealing with life kinds of conversations and sitting in a restaurant and being so engrossed in conversation that someone has to come and say, uh, we're closing soon, sir. There's all the difference in the world between it's about kids and schedule and bath and what's for dinner tonight, who's coming over, kinds of conversations, which is important, and getting aside, getting away, and setting aside intentional time for uninterrupted communication and communion with the person you care about. See, one kind of conversation leads to just dealing with chaos and randomness of life but the other kinds of conversation allows you and the person that you care about to connect intimately and deeply. 
That's why if you're not accustomed to setting aside time to talk to God intentionally in an uninterrupted way, you can be, if you will, three feet away from God and feel disconnected. The connection of intimacy often comes when we do what Jesus told us to do. Do you remember Matthew 6? He said, go into your room, close the door. In other words, set aside time, maybe even a place where you'll be uninterrupted to communion with your heavenly Father. This is a great opportunity, church, to establish, again, this habit, this rhythm of learning to set aside time. Matter of fact, I would say this. The extent to which we have established set-aside time, uninterrupted time to be with the Lord, that actually would make these on-the-go conversations and talking to God continually without ceasing that much more powerful, that much more intimate. Okay? So, first things first. Establish these times. Sign up for those prayer slots. I'd love to see those things just filled out in the next coming week as we continue our 40-day journey. All right, well, so as we continue our sermon series on prayer, I hope that you're realizing maybe that there is some paradigm-shifting things. Many of us, I think, thought of prayer as just asking God for things and petitioning God for things, which our Heavenly Father welcomes us to do, right? He says, ask for daily bread and ask for forgiveness and and, and, and then all of that other stuff. He cares. Our Heavenly Father cares about that. But we're realizing, though, that more than that, what prayer is, is communion. More than that, what prayer is, is in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus saying, I want you to get to know the heart of my Heavenly Father. I want you to get to know what He's passionate about, what He delights in, what He rejoices in, what, what, what He's up to in your life, in your city, and in the world, and how you and I could join Him in on that and align our lives around that. He's saying prayer should be seeking God first. Seek God first. And all of these other things, I know about them. I care about them. And I'm more than willing to meet those needs in your life. Prayer, Jesus says, is about getting a glimpse into the heart of God. That's what the Lord's Prayer is. It's giving us an inside look. But what we're going to see today, and also next week, church, and this is so exciting, is that in the Lord's Prayer, these 57 words in Greek, 57 words, what we find in these words are prayers that change the world. Let me say that again. 57 words that change the world. Now, look at your Bible with me. We are going to, of course, read the Lord's Prayer. And also, as I read this, I, I hope that you can actually come to these words and, and it'll hit you differently. And maybe you could, as I read it and you read it, pray it. Okay, pray it. Matthew 6, 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In these Familiar words, let me say that again, 57 words that could change the world. That's what we have. Now, real quick brief review from what we talked about last week as we get to the second petition 
Let your kingdom come, which is a focus for today. Remember two things regarding the Lord's Prayer that we talked about that really adds a framework and structure. First is the verbs. The verbs are in the third person imperative mood. In other words, Jesus says they're commands. These are not just, oh God, if you, these are commands that we're asking God to do. We are literally saying, God, do this. God, do this, right? But it's in the passive voice, which basically means that it's a soft command. That's why the English translation is not do this, but God, let it be done, right? Let your kingdom come and let your will be done. But don't lose, don't lose sight of this. Jesus literally saying, when you come, pray with boldness, right? Pray with forcefulness. This is how your heavenly father wants you to pray. Here's the other thing, though, on why it's in the passive voice that's important for us, and that is this. Only God can do what we're asking to be done. Church, just come on, come on, somebody. Oh, this, this, is, this is something that only God can do. Now, to be clear, this is not saying that the only thing we do is pray because after all, there's nothing we can do only God can do. No, we must be involved. We want to be involved in becoming answers to the prayers that we pray, right? But we want to be really, really clear up front so that we are not the ones making this happen. We are not the chief actors in this drama. We are needed, but the fundamental word for which you pray is God's work. Now, is this good news to somebody? Come on. This is good. It's not up to us. God can and God will. This prayer is asking for the establishment of the kingdom of God by God for us. Not by us. Or God. And then the center of the prayer, of course, is the clause on earth as it is in heaven, which is just mind blowing if you think about it. Because literally what we're saying when we say, God, do this on earth as it is in heaven, and this on earth as it is in heaven clause goes with the three petitions up front. We're saying, God, let the reality of heaven be brought to bear on earth. Reality of heaven. What's going on in heaven? Here's what's going on in heaven. God's name is being hallowed perfectly in heaven. We're saying, God, do that here. The kingdom, the rule and reign of God is ruling and reign with perfection, with sovereignty, with power. And we're saying, God, do that here. And God, your will is being done immediately, obediently, perfectly. And God, do that here. Just think about the significance of what our city would look like, what our world would look like if the reality of heaven was being brought to earth. But that's what the Lord's Prayer is. We're saying, Father, bring heaven down to earth. Do it right here. To pray the Lord's Prayer is to participate in heaven's invasion, in heaven's occupation, hello, of earth. This is an incredible privilege that we have, church, isn't it? Incredible. Incredible. So let's go through the Lord's Prayer as we come to the second petition. So it's Father in heaven. We are praying to our what? Heavenly Father who cares for us, who loves us unconditionally and is more than willing to provide for us and answer our prayers. That's who we're coming to, our Father in heaven. Then last week we, saw, we talked about what? First petition, hallowed be your name. Cause your name to be esteemed. Cause your name to be reverenced, to be valued, to be treasured and adored above all else. God, cause, cause your name, that is the essence of who you fundamentally are, 
to be the ultimate aim, to be the ultimate concern, to be the most crucial thing, to be the most sacred thing in my heart. Begin here. In my heart, your name, my heart. And then in the hearts and lives of others until it goes to the rest of the world. It is a prayer to ask God to rewire our hearts and reorder our lives in such a way that Jesus is preeminent. Remember? Preeminent. Jesus is central in our thinking, in our planning, in our feelings, and everything about us. That's what we're praying. And again, just can you imagine what would happen to the city of Chicago and the rest of the world if every single human being was hallowing God's name? Isaiah 26, 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. The word renown literally means the condition of being known or talked about by many people. Fame, your renown is the desire of our hearts. You see, when Jesus becomes preeminent, central in our lives, you and I will approach everything from the perspective of, will this make Jesus more known or me more known? Will this cause people to talk about Jesus more? Or will this cause people to talk about me and what I'm doing more? Will, will, will this cause people to go, wow, your God is amazing? Or will it cause people to go, well, you're pretty amazing? What does this look like practically? You know, somebody emailed one of our staff and said, and I love the question. I said, you know, I, I want to hollow God's name with my finances. What, 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 is that, what does it look like? How do I pray that? Here's what I would say to you. When you say, hallowed be your name, God, again, all of our lives with our finances, you're saying, Father, I want how I make money, how I spend money, how I save money, everything that deals with finances to show the world that you are my real treasure. You're my security. Okay? You're my treasure. You're my security. You're my significance. And not how much I make and how much I save and what I spend it on. You see what I'm saying? Hallowed be your name, my finances. It's displaying the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. He's all that and then some, right? Hallowed be your name in, in relationships and dating, so on and so forth. I mean, how many of our marriages and relationships hallow God's name? In other words, it points to how amazing he is. It magnifies, Scripture says, God's name. And we're saying, God, hallow be your name in my, in my relationships. Help my relationship to show the world, God, that you are my real love, that you are my real passion. You are my real beloved. And that you only can meet the deepest, deepest longing of my heart. And real quick, one more example. Yeah, our staff... We were talking last week about just the strategic initiatives for this coming year. And, and as I was praying at the end, I, 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 I began to sense this in my heart. I, I began to sense, God, if all the stuff that we're planning causes people to go, wow, new community is an amazing church. You people, I said, God, I don't want it. I don't want it, God. Who cares if new community name is magnified? Who cares if people in Chicago think new community is all that some? If God's name, God's fame, God's reputation is not at the forefront of people's minds. 
Hallowed be your name, God, in our church. We want people to get to know you. We want people to be excited about you. We want your reputation, God, to be well known. Not us. And I literally said, right, Constance? I said, God, so if there are things that we're planning that's going to advance our name, our fame, God, close that door. Shut that down. We don't want it. We don't want it. Hallowed be your name. And then we come to our second petition, which, which let your kingdom come, let your kingdom, I mean, again, we just kind of, you know, this just rolls off of our tongues. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. This petition, someone said, ought to come with the warning label. We need to be wearing like hard hats when you pray this. Seriously. To pray this is the most radical thing that we can do. Hear me, please. Let your kingdom come. Like the most radical thing, we are asking God to bring about the most massive revolution on earth imaginable to us. Uh, David Wells is a South African theologian who's been incredibly instrumental in terms of helping me shape my understanding of prayer, okay? And he basically wrote one of this article that, 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 that says prayer is rebellion against that status quo. Prayer is just rebellion against the status quo, you know? And, and for some of us, we hear the word rebellion, we're like, ooh, yeah, I want to be about that. What? Rebellion against the status quo. Here's what he says. It's a little bit long, but it's important, so pay, pay attention here. And what is the nature of petitionary prayer, David Wells says? It's, in essence, rebellion. Rebellion against the world and its fallenness. The absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It's the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. That isn't what he says. He says, so then why do we pray so little for our local church? The answer, quite simply, is that we don't believe that it will make any difference. We accept, however despairingly, that the situation is unchangeable. What we will see, what we see will always be the status quo. This is the way it is. And I love what he says, because I think the problem for many of us is not that we're unaware of the injustice, the suffering, or the evil. We're very well aware. I think many of us just like, what can be done about it? We feel powerless to do anything. So this is what he says. Then. He says that petitionary prayer only flourishes. You and I will be passionate about prayer when there are two things, two beliefs. He says the first thing that's required where petitionary prayer flourishes is, is this. He says that God's name is hallowed too irregularly. He says his kingdom has come too little and his will is done too infrequently. Let me, let me just ask you a question. When is the last time you and I, including myself, tossed and churned and couldn't go to sleep because God's name was not being hollowed. When's the last time you couldn't go to sleep and you were tossing and turning and anxious and, 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 and righteously angry because God's kingdom, rule and reign, was not more manifest? When is the last time that not your career, not that boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, not what the finances, not, none of those things. But when was the last time you just were just, ah, because God's will wasn't being done? 
When was the last time that that was what drove us crazy? He says, petition a prayer will flourish when you and I go, God's name is not being hallowed and I don't want that to happen. God's kingdom is not advancing and that's not okay. God's will is not being done. Something needs to be done about it. That is when petitionary prayer begins to make sense. Secondly, he says, petitionary prayer also flourishes when we believe that God himself can change a situation. Petitionary prayer, therefore, is the expression of the hope that life as we meet it, on the one hand, can be otherwise, and on the other hand, it ought to be otherwise. It's impossible to seek to live in God's world on his terms, doing his work in a way that is consistent with who he is without engaging in regular prayer. This is why he says petitionary prayer is rebellion against the status quo. It is Prayer that says, I'm not going to accept the promise that things can't change. No way, no way, uh-uh, uh-uh. I am not going to accept that things can't change, that this is the way it always been, and this is the way it always be. No, the injustice, the evil, no, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Things can be different, and things should be different. So I'm going to pray. And no prayer expresses the heart and soul of this better than this second petition that we will talk about today, which is, let your kingdom come. Now, I'm going to show us how we pray this, okay, and what it means to pray this. But I need to back up and say a little bit about what the kingdom of God is. I'm not assuming that all of you that are watching today understands and knows what the kingdom of God is. There's lots of misunderstanding. And truth be told, many of us that are a new community learn about the kingdom of God here. Right? So what is the kingdom of God? Give me, give, give me a little bit to kind of talk about that. Then we'll talk about what does it mean to pray, let your kingdom come. Kingdom, kingdom. Huh. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, somebody said, take your time. And I'm, okay, I, I want to do that. I don't want to rush through this. Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. Matter of fact, if you look at the Gospels and you take out every time Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, you might not have a whole lot of the Gospels left. This was constant message, right? Matter of fact, the Old New Testament, though, 150 times in the entire New Testament, you find the phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, for Jesus, Jesus, this was central to his life and ministry, right? The kingdom of God. By the way, Jesus almost never talked about what happens when we die. Do you know that? Almost never. Here's what he did talk about. The first time we see Jesus, according to the gospel writer Mark, first time we hear him actually talk, this is what he says. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Verse 15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news was what? The kingdom of God is near. That was the good news. So what is the kingdom of God then? The kingdom literally means the reign of God, okay? Or the rule of God. Kingdom isn't heaven, some place we go to when we die, Kingdom literally means the reign of God or the rule of God. Or as someone said, it's God acting as king. The kingdom of God 
describes the final establishment of God's rule and reign over everything, all of creation, where God is going to be king, rule without rival, and put everything back together, make everything right. That is what the kingdom of God is. And I want to understand why it is that Jesus came to do that. We need to understand, well, what happened that required him to do that, right? Here's what happened. Genesis 1 and 2. See, God's original intention for his creation. Heaven once existed on earth, church. Genesis, Bible says that the first humans lived in a perfect world in which all relationships were whole. Remember, Everything is about relationships, right? So there was shalom, universal flourishing. Our relationship with God was perfect. Our relationship with ourselves, relationship with each other, all of creation was perfect because God was king. But that didn't last long. Heaven didn't last long because we're told in Genesis 3, this is the story of the human race. If you want to make sense of anything and everything that's happening in our world, and this is not an exaggeration, if you want to make sense of all the brokenness, all the chaos in our world, here's what happened. The storyline of the human race is that instead of living under the rule and reign of God, under his kingship, sovereign, loving kingship, you and I decided to choose self-kingship. We decided to come out from under the rule and reign of God, take control of our lives and said, I will be king. I will be Lord. I will be master of my own life. And the result of that is everything fell apart. Not just our relationship with God. That's not some total of what Jesus came to redeem. Everything fell apart physically, spiritually, culturally, socially. And unleashed into our world was sin, chaos, and brokenness. And the rest of human history is essentially a war between two kingdoms. This is, this is Augustine, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And each of these two kingdoms has its own ruler, its own people, its own desire and destiny. When you read the Bible through the lens of the kingdom, here's what you see. All of scripture is pointing to a time in which a Messiah is going to come and establish God's kingdom once and for all, making everything right and putting everything back together. The people of God in the Old Testament, of course, refer to this as the age to come. There is an age to come in which a sovereign king will defeat all evil and justice, forgive people of their sin, vindicate the righteous, judge the wicked, and put the entire world back together to God's original intention. That's what people were waiting for. That's the end of history, when God is going to reconcile all things by bringing all things under his rule and reign. Now, here's the really cool thing. Nowhere in the Gospels did Jesus paint a better picture of this than Matthew 19, 28. Now, where am I to go? For those of you that have been in the new community for a while, you're going to have a big smile on your face. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you'll write on your chat like, yes! Because this anchors our theology when it comes to the kingdom. Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal, Greek word is palingenesia, of all things, 
When the Son of Man sits on his glory throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Greek word for renewal is the word palingenesia, which literally means regenesis, to be remade, to be reborn. And to understand the significance of what Jesus says here, and it's huge, we need to understand the two prevailing worldviews at the time. First, the Jews. The Hebrews believed that history has a purpose. It's linear. It's, it's going forward. History is moving forward towards its appointed end. The living God is active in history, and it's not random. Things are moving toward an appointed end. And the end, of course, is the kingdom of God, where God was going to rule. That is what the Jews believed. Then the Greeks, of course, had a totally different view of the world. They saw history not as linear move forward, but an endless cycle, repetition of the same cycle. They believed that the world as we know it is constantly spiraling down into moral and cultural and physical disarray without any hope for change. So in their worldview, every once in a while, the entire universe, check this out, went through a process of purifying, of cleansing. And when it was all said and done, everything in creation was palingenesia, that is, renewed, remade. You following me? Now, having heard that, listen to the significance of what it is when Jesus says in Matthew 19, at the renewal of all things. He's saying, no, no, no. There's no repetitive cycle of constant, you know, things getting going bad and renewed. He's saying, no, 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 no. Things will, for once and for all, be completely renewed, remade, reborn. Question, of course, is when, when, when is that going to happen? When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, in other words, Jesus is just affirming here what the entire scripture is about, which is all of history is heading towards a climactic ending where everything is going to be renewed, cleansed, made perfect, made right. Not over and over again, but once and for all. And what fire could have the power to do that? When the Son of Man, hello, sits on the glorious throne, when the Son of Man established the kingdom of God, rule without rival, destroy all evil, and make everything right. That, my friends, was the good news that Jesus came proclaiming. The good news is not, I'm going to say it one last time, that we die and go to heaven. I'm thankful that we get to go to heaven someday and be with but the reality of what is that God is up to is that he is intervening in human history in a radical way to begin the work of completely transforming our broken world and reversing all the effects of the fall of humanity. Man, oh man, under the loving, sovereign rule of God, everything sad will come undone. That was the good news. And now, oh, listen, 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 listen. 
You go, well, someday. No, no, no. Jesus said what? Kingdom of God is near. In other words, he's saying, in me, that future has landed right here, right now. Not fully. That's going to happen when he returns. But it's definitely here, partially and really. The rule and reign of God has been ushered into the present reality. Jesus is saying, I'm the king that you've been waiting for. And when you read the Gospels, his entire life and ministry centered on not only teaching, but more importantly, manifesting, revealing what this reign of God, what this rule of God will look like, right? Why did he forgive sins? Just to show that he's God? No, he was saying the kingdom is one in which your sins will be forgiven and you will know God perfectly. Why did he heal people? Just to show off that he was God? No, you say the kingdom will come when all sickness and disease and death will be no more. Why did he, why did he speak on the injustices and oppression? Because the kingdom of God is one in which all evil, all injustice, and all wickedness will be judged once and for all and wiped out. That's what he was up to. Kingdom of God, Jesus, is not just a future thing, but a present reality. In Luke 17, 21, this is important. He said, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It's, it's among you. Yes, we live in the tension of the already and not yet. And I don't know about you, but I'm going, hasten the day, Lord, for your kingdom to come. But the kingdom is already here in Jesus, even though it has yet to be consummated. And you and I can see the reality of the kingdom and experience the reality of the kingdom today. Now, having said that, this is so cool. There is one other place where this word palingenesia occurs in the New Testament. Did you know that? Do you know where it appears? This is, get ready to have your mind blown. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal. Hello, palingenesia. By the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Come up close, come up close, come up close. Let me tell you what happened at the moment of conversion in your life. The power of God that is going to someday renew all of creation came into your life. The power of God that is going to someday cleanse, renew all of creation came into your life. My life. That's what becoming a Christian means. You are literally born, what? Again. You are remade. Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. When you become a Christian, listen, you don't become a better version of you. You become a new you. Come on, somebody. You become a new you. No, I am not the man that I want to be, but I'm not the man that I once was. Uh-uh. I'm becoming somebody new. 
I'm being remade. And God already sees me as new. I have a new history now. You know what this means? There's nothing in your past that can't be overcome. Come on, somebody. There's nothing. You don't have to just cope with the things that you struggle with. Sometimes some of us look at certain things that we struggle with and we just go, that's the status quo, right? That's just the way I am. That's, that's just the way it's always going to be. Prayer is rebelling against the status quo, right? Prayer is saying, no, things can be different. Things should be different and things will be different. Why? Because the power of God is in my life. The resurrection power of God. So no sin, no habit, no addiction, no wound, no family of origin stories is more powerful than the power of the Spirit. He can make any, he can take any raw material and make it fit for a king. That's the power of the kingdom to make all things new, all things right, all things glorious. Is that encouraging? There's also a word of challenge, though. What's the word of challenge? The presence of the kingdom cannot be separated from the presence of the, hello, king. Wherever the kingdom of God is, King Jesus is there. Where the kingdom of God comes in you, King Jesus comes into you. Here's how the Christian life works. You and me enter his kingdom. You and I don't invite Jesus into our kingdom. Come on, somebody, okay? You and I enter his kingdom. We don't invite Jesus into our kingdom. That's why I hate the phrase, invite Jesus. No, it just confuses that. When some of us became a Christian, we transferred Jesus into what? Into our kingdom, into the context of my life. So my desires, my aspirations, my goals, my priorities don't change. We just invite Jesus into our little kingdom, and we just go, Jesus, I need you to get on board. I need you to kind of help manage my kingdom, okay? My goals and my agenda. And we get all bent out of shape because it appears that Jesus actually is not interested in helping you and me be a better king. He's not interested in helping you and me manage our kingdom. Jesus is not interested in being our kingdom at all. And can we just be honest? We stink at ruling our own kingdoms, do we not? Come on, somebody. We've tried being a king, and all we have to show for it is a broken life, broken relationships, broken dreams. But this is always what happens when you and I take control and say, God, I got this. No, no, no. Colossians 1. In him, under him, all things hold together. It doesn't matter what that thing is. It could be marriage, career, finances, relationships. If God is not king over that, it's going to fall apart. You are going to fall apart. In him, all things hold together. Maybe you're somebody who's listening today who's just completely lost. You're directionless, you're visionless, you're frustrated with your career, your business, relationships, and you're at a crossroads. My question simply is this, who's king over that? Who's king over that? Who's king over your career? Who's been calling the shots in terms of your career? You or God? Are we great at compartmentalizing, right? I give you that, you could be lower than that. I give you that, you could be lower than that. But the truth of the matter is, there are areas in our lives where we have not submitted and yielded to his kingship. You've been calling the shots. I've been calling the shots. So confess to God 
If you have not relinquished control, God, God, I don't know what I'm doing. Listen, listen. I don't say, God, I don't. I, before I make any more decisions about my future, God, here, take it. Here, take it, God. So I don't know what you're struggling with. What area needs healing and redemption? What area is falling apart needs to come together? But the first step and the only step for some of us is to begin here. God, I surrender. I submit. I'm done trying to manage, trying to control God, trying to figure out. God, here, take it. Take it. Take it. The first step towards healing is to bring that under his kingship, relationship, marriage, and saying, God, I'm done being king over this. Here, God, take it. Take it. I submit. I surrender. Where you go, I go. What you do, I do. I'm letting go plans that I've received, I've conceived in my mind. I'm saying, Jesus, you're king. You lead, I follow. So what does it mean to pray, let your kingdom come? Three quick prayers and its application. What does it mean? By the way, can you, you get the sense this is huge? I hope that you never, ever utter those words, let your kingdom come loosely again or flippantly again. First, what does it mean to pray? When we pray, let your kingdom come, we are rebelling against the status quo. Come on, somebody. It's easy to lose faith and hope and think that the whole world is wasting away when you and I watch the news, isn't it? It's so easy to think that we have no hope and just give up when we see the kind of injustice that plagues our world, the extent of poverty that's ravaged our countries and the kind of evil that people are capable of. But, 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 hear me now! There will come a time when God will take his rightful place on the throne and Satan and evil will be no more, suffering will be no more, Poverty will be no more. Injustice will be no more. Hunger will be no more. Death and disease will be no more. Tears, tears, tears will be no more. And that's a promise, not a wish. So when we pray, let your kingdom come, we're praying, do that now, God. Do that here, God. Bring it, Father. Bring it. Bring on your revolution. Reverse the effects of sin. Restore broken humanity and come reign without rival. Come reign without rival in all the earth. Praying this petition is rebelling against the status quo. It is refusing to accept the premise that nothing will change. That it has always been, always be. Things can be different. Things will be different because I am praying. Prayer is the way to do violence against injustice, injustice, poverty, and racism. Prayer is the way to invade enemy territory and set the oppressed free. Prayer is the way to push back forces of darkness. Prayer is how you and I tear down strongholds. Prayer is how the church experiences unity. Prayer is how God heals your marriage. Prayer is how we experience God's glorious future in the present. Prayer simply is how heaven invades and occupies earth. Praying let your kingdom come is a process by which we see that happen. Secondly, when we pray let your kingdom come, we are committing ourselves to manifesting it in our world. That's important. We're saying, God, use me to be an answer to my prayer. We're saying, Father, only you can do this, right? But pray for the kingdom to come through you and me. Father, manifest your kingdom through my life. I'm yours. I make myself available to you for your purposes in the world. King Jesus, through me, make yourself real in my part of the world. 
Make me an instrument of your peace, justice, compassion, mercy, love, righteousness. God, I want a little bit of the kingdom, the rule and reign of God to land in my work, land in my neighborhood, land in my family, land in my city. Not just for yourself, but pray also for the kingdom to come in and through your church and churches all over the city. Father, make us your church a clear and engaging sign that the future is breaking into the present. Father, grant that when the city looks at us, it sees you and your new world order. King Jesus, do through us what you did when you walked the earth in visible form. Through us, heal the sick, free captives, reconcile enemies, and raise the dead to newness of life. Through us. When you pray, you let your kingdom come. We're committing ourselves to manifesting it in our world. By the way, real quick, if you make this a regular part of your prayer life, something really cool begins to happen, you know? You know what that is? Mark 1.15, Jesus, remember, said the time. The Greek word there is kairos. Hello. You should be familiar with this. Kairos is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. And as we know in our church, kairos is not chronological time. That's chronos. Chronos is chronological time measured by clocks and calendars. Kairos is opportunity time. It's timeliness, that unique moment determined by God for the fulfillment of his divine purposes. And what that means for us is this, that because of Jesus, every Kronos moment can be a Kairos moment. Every Kronos moment can be a Kairos. Kairos for what? Time for what? For the inbreaking of the kingdom. That's so why if you take a look at Jesus' life, you see that every event and occurrence in his life, no matter how ordinary or offhand, he had a kingdom priority to it. Jesus simply watched and saw where the kingdom was working and he moved toward it with eyes and arms wide open. So can we. Everywhere you and I go, no matter how mundane or ordinary it might be, has kingdom implications. And if our heart's desire is constantly trained to see his kingdom come, we'll be ready. We'll be ready. The kingdom is here. It's coming. And you and I could take an active part of it. So in praying this, you're asking God, God, make me sensitive to opportunities that can show a glimpse of your kingdom through word and deed. Make me aware of every moment, God, of every day when I'm with my kids, when I'm working at the hospital, when I'm wherever it is. Every day is a kingdom-infused moment. Every moment is a kairos moment. And you'll begin to see kingdom come in unexpected ways at unusual times because you are looking for it. And lastly, when we pray, let your kingdom come. We're simply asking God to expand his rule over the territory of our hearts and lives. And it must begin here. The prayer for the kingdom to come, his rule and reign to come is not just about cosmic events. It's an invitation for you and I to embrace God's kingdom in every aspect of our lives. It's an invitation to embrace his rule over every sphere of our lives. Relationships, money, time, job, career, marriage, ministry. We're saying, God, I want you to reign over this. I want you to sit on the throne. I want you to have authority over this area. Because if you're not Lord of all, you're not Lord at all. God, what would you like to see happen? What would you like me to do in this area? Is Jesus king in your life? 
Is Jesus king in your life, Christian? The coming of God's rule means the end of our rule. The coming of God's rule means the end of our rule. Stop treating God like some sort of a highly paid consultant. Stop treating God like some sort of highly paid consultant. He does not come to help you manage your kingdom. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? If not, again, begin with repentance. In AA, once you state your name and what you are, the healing can begin, right? So we need to be rigorously honest with ourselves and say, God, I've taken you off the throne of my life. I'm calling the shots. I'm controlling, manipulating this. And Lord, I'm done with that. I, I surrender and I submit my life to you. Father, manifest your kingdom, your rule and your reign. Break through to any resistance to your kingship in my heart. Help me to die to self-kingship. Jesus, humble me, forgive me, cleanse me, free me, restore me, give me courage to submit and to follow you wherever you go. Let your kingdom come. Church, let's prepare our hearts. As we close our eyes for prayer and communion.